Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, rays and their underwater habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host Isla and every episode I am lucky enough to be able to sit down with experts in marine science and conservation to pitch them your questions about sharks and the oceans. Before we jump into today's episode I just wanted to remind you to keep sending in your questions to us. We've had some absolutely brilliant ones on the pod but we're always looking for more and remember no question is too big or too small. You can do this by emailing isla at saveourseas.com or by contacting us on social media. We're on at Save Our Seas on Twitter and at Save Our Seas Foundation on Instagram. We absolutely love hearing from you. We love getting your questions. We love your comments or any ideas that you have for, for topics for us. So please do get in touch. Okay, with that said, on to today's episode. Now, we are taking a little break from sharks because this week, on April 25th, it was World Penguin Day, the one day of the year dedicated entirely to these wonderful, hardy, fascinating birds. It's also a day where we raise awareness of the great challenges penguins are facing because not only are they immensely lovable and charismatic, but they live in environments that are changing drastically. Many penguin species are actually in a decline as a result of lots of different and very complex issues, most of which we still don't know that much about. So in honour of World Penguin Day, my guest today is someone who does know a lot about them and the challenges that they face, Dr. Tom Hart. Tom is a scientist and penguinologist based at Oxford University in the UK, who has spent most of his career researching species in Antarctica, developing tools and techniques to monitor change in wild populations over time and figure out how these animals are being affected by the huge range of threats occurring in the Antarctic Peninsula. In 2021, Tom became a Save Our Seas project leader. He is researching the drivers of penguin declines in Antarctica, using faecal samples and drone and camera data to understand the ways penguins are being affected by issues like climate change, overfishing and tourism. Interestingly, the COVID-19 pandemic offered a unique opportunity to compare and contrast years where humans were virtually absent from the Antarctic Peninsula with years where tourism and human visitation was pretty active, allowing Tom and his colleagues to disentangle different threats and better inform management towards the conservation of penguins in the region. I was so lucky to get to chat with Tom about his research, his career and, of course, penguins. We talk about what it's like to work somewhere as breathtaking and challenging as Antarctica, how penguins are perfectly adapted to such a tough environment, and the unique methods Tom has developed to monitor them over long periods of time. We also discuss some of the threats facing penguins and what we can all do to help protect them and safeguard the place that they call home. So, Without further ado, grab your thermals and get ready to go on an adventure to one of the coldest places on Earth to talk all things penguin. Let's dive into our episode. Tom, hello and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks Isla. No, thanks so much for being on. Um, I, as I said to you earlier, ever since your, your uh, project came out with the Save Our Seas Foundation, 
I have been dying to get you on the podcast. I imagine like a lot of people sitting at home, I am absolutely fascinated by Antarctica and of course by penguins. So I'm really excited to talk to you about this. But first, we're going to learn a little bit about you. Um, and we're going to start with a question that we ask every one of our guests that comes on this podcast. And that is, what is your most memorable experience in the ocean? Well, it's probably, it's probably in one of the most remote areas on Earth, the South Sandwich Islands, where I was on a yacht and we had two humpbacks that came and hung around the boat for just hours. Um, uh, it's normally one of the roughest places on Earth. We had a one incredibly calm day, which is a real rarity. And yeah, two humpbacks just came and, and played around the boat. And um, we stopped. We weren't going anywhere. They came to us. Um, and yeah, it was just weird being up close in the just about the remotest part of the planet you can get to yeah because it, it can get pretty wild down there um I've, I've seen videos of that crossing and it's definitely not for those who get seasick <laughs> from the looks of it yeah absolutely you coined the term penguinologist which to be honest has to be one of the coolest uh, job titles out there um so what does being a penguinologist entail well, firstly, I'm not sure I coined it. I mean, I certainly came up with it, but then you can actually find loads of other examples of people using it. So I've, I wouldn't say coined it, I've nicked it for my own ends. And, um, and that really is because it says exactly what I do. And the point is that I could describe myself as some kind of geneticist, marine ecologist, um, remote sensor, but I largely just do penguins. And so the diversity of what you do to understand, um, you know, the one of the most important taxa in Antarctica uh, is everything. So uh, there's a lot of, like I say, counting, remote sensing, flying drones, trying to survey populations over time and see how they're changing and where they're changing. Uh, there, there's a lot of citizen science and AI on time-lapse photography trying to understand how breeding is changing and success or failure in different parts of the southern ocean but really this is all wrapped up in the the desire and the need to understand penguins so it's a bit of everything uh, what I do on a daily basis when I'm not in Antarctica is largely write a lot of permits and work out how to move batteries around the world <laughs> that's the same for I, I think for a lot of scientists is that the field work is really cool and what we actually get to do in the field is really awesome but what people don't see is a lot of the getting the licenses and sitting behind a computer and like working out all the logistics which in a place like Antarctica so I've done a lot of science in Scotland and I imagine Antarctica is much more logistically challenging which we will learn about a little bit later on um but first I was really interested to know did you always want to study penguins specifically or you know how did you how did you get to uh to researching penguins in Antarctica so no absolutely not always penguins I mean I I came on them really uh that um I knew I always wanted to do some kind of conservation ecology that would make a difference um it's not on 
the job description when you're looking around. There aren't many, you, you know, you're not told as a kid you can work in Antarctica. Uh, so really that's something that you become aware of later in life uh, studying biology and and um, looking around. It's no surprise. If I think of the kind of the the kid in me that is still screaming with glee when I pack. Um, so I reckon I can pack for Antarctica now in just over an hour. Um, and you get used to, it normalizes it. You get used to saying, oh, I'm, you know, I'm just nipping off to wherever in Antarctica. And yet there is a kid inside you that is absolutely screaming with pleasure um, for all that that is normalized. And um, so, yeah, I don't think I was ever told it was a thing. Um, what got me here, but but like I say, it's no surprise because what got me here was a love of natural places and conservation and as soon as I started learning about Antarctica and the Southern Ocean, it was clear that that was a love and that I wanted to go there and I wanted to work there. Penguins are quite easy because they're indicator species. So I, I came into um, an appreciation of penguins uh, via a desire to protect the whole ecosystem. Because mm -hmm. it definitely, it feels to me like one of, truly one of the, true wildernesses that we have left on planet earth i mean i know that we see uh, more and more humans being able to go and visit places like antarctica but it really does still feel very wild and very and very out there and what a, a beautiful place to have as your kind of normal i put that in quotation marks uh <laughs> places places of work it's certainly wild i mean it's a crazy place um i love the fact that i I work there I uh, I mean it, it's such a core part of me now it's really important to me um, it's not wilderness there's a lot of wilderness about it but there was somewhere between one and three million whales taken from the southern ocean um, in the 20th century and uh, the only thing that isn't really is a permanent human population and the pollution that comes with that. Otherwise, climate change reaches down into Antarctica. Fishing is there. Um, and so, yes, it, there's a lot of... You, you see remnants of disturbance by explorers and by relatively recent science programs, actually, and, and pre- and post-Antarctic Treaty national programs leaving waste down there. Um, so... If you look on average, it is as inspirational and wild as the general impression is. Unfortunately, you go to places, particularly near scientific bases, and there's a, you know, it's clearly not. We've already exploited it, and actually we've exploited it for quite a while for whaling and sealing. Yeah, that's really interesting, and I think that's something that, I mean, I just made that mistake myself, is that when we see pictures of Antarctica sort of online, um, we imagine it is like an untouched wilderness, you know, it, it does, like I said, it's so wild to try and get there in the first place. Um, but our human impact is is reaching even as far as that, um, which is actually quite heartbreaking. And, and this kind of brings me on to my next question. Um, we're already kind of talking about it, is that 
in a lot of your your talks and your podcasts that you've done already, you've mentioned the fact that Antarctica doesn't actually look quite like what we would expect it to. Um, and so I wondered if you could maybe describe, you know, what you mean by that and what it's what it's actually like when you go to visit it. Uh, if I can ask a question quickly, what, yeah, of course. what do you imagine in your mind's eye? Oh, for me, I see a lot of white. <laughs> I see a lot of ice um, and, you know, these, these big glaciers. That's what I kind of really associate with Antarctica and kind of wild seas. Um, and I imagine that is yeah. true in a way, but not all of it. it it's definitely true, but it's, um, it's a lot more diverse than that. So... Um, so yes, there's there's lots of glaciers, there's lots of white, but I think people assume it's black and white. Um, there's a, a lot of blues, there's a lot of pinks and reds uh, from everything from uh, snow algae to penguin poo when they've been eating krill. Um, and actually, um, particularly where the life is, that's often on the edges, so it's the least icy. And as you go into the sub-Antarctic, so, uh, or peri-Antarctic, these islands that kind of ring Antarctica, um, there's lots of green on the edges of those. So there's lots of tussock grass, there's lots of mosses. And so this, this stereotype really does exist. However, it's, it's more diverse than that. And you, you get a lot of the wild seas that these, these documentaries love to show, but actually in the summer and inside the archipelagos where a lot of the penguins are and where there's um, currents and channels, so there's a lot for whales to whales and seals to feed on, that's often quite calm. So we definitely get these kind of picture postcard days of brilliant blues and whites. Uh, so that's what I mean. Whenever I say that, it's a lot more diverse. There's a lot more green. Um, and uh, yeah, there's there's a lot more color and a lot more diversity of habitat than I think most people expect. Did you say earlier that penguins have? Did you say they have pink poo because of what they eat? Yeah, I mean the color of their poo is is cool. Uh, it's broadly speaking, uh, when you go around a colony, white is fish, could be squid. Um, pink already is krill and green is when is kind of bile when they've been standing around for a long time uh so yeah if they've been on the nest for a while cool that's really cool i mean i'd be slightly worried if i had pink poo but i must admit it would be it would make things slightly more interesting but yeah that's awesome that you can it'd certainly be more interesting and it would yeah it would show a good 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 krill intake so that that's a good penguin You know, you, you've obviously been to Antarctica multiple times over the years. And are you noticing changes every time you go back as our, as our climate changes? Definitely. Um, one of the most noticeable is, I mean, there are some places, particularly on South Georgia, um, where when I started going, there was a glacier and now there's a bay. Um, for glaciers retreating on land, um, then, yeah, St Andrews Bay has retreated something like a mile and a half um, since 1982, which is when the hut was built that we kind of use as a, a yardstick. And, yeah, every time I go back, I see further retreat. And In fact, we have a kind of time series of photographs that show that. Um, 
in terms of sea ice, and that's what actually matters to a lot of the marine, um, the marine animals. Um, sea ice comes and goes every year any rate so that's really hard to get an impression of i mean parts of antarctica sea ice is declining quite rapidly particularly on the peninsula um but a lot of antarctica it's actually stable or increasing um and that's weather patterns longer climate um something that's quite hard to explain um but we do Yes, you can definitely see impacts of climate change. Uh, that's irrefutable. And um, we're also seeing biological change, some of which we can tie to climate change, but a lot of which is unknown. So one of the biggest, one of my biggest issues is actually trying to disentangle all these things, particularly fishing versus climate change. And, um, you know, we can find an association with climate change in penguin decline but that's not necessarily a causal driver and for example uh, nothing if you're a fishery we also see patterns of change in the fishery and nothing nothing influences where you can fish more than whether there's sea ice in the way or not so so it's complex and that is the whole point of my project is trying to disentangle that and work out which uh, threats or stressors to wildlife we can mitigate and which we can't. Yes, yes. Um, and I think it's really, really fascinating. I mean, I've, this is kind of a question I've got for later on, but I'm actually going to come to it now because we're, we're talking about it, is that although the pandemic was awful for a lot of reasons and, you know, it kind of stalled a lot of field work for many other scientists, you actually found an opportunity in there to sort of as you say, disentangle these drivers. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, well, while it's been awful for you know myself, for colleagues, family, as for everyone else, um, professionally, this was a really good opportunity because there was a year, basically a year and a half without tourism. Now, one of the things we list um, that's potentially influencing change in the region is tourism. It has actually, wherever we've studied it, that's failed to be borne out. Uh, so we actually think tourism um, might be either a very minor effect or positive. I can certainly come up with positives like taking photos of pollution and bad behavior, as we discussed earlier, and, and drawing attention to it. Um, but it's really important to disentangle it. So even if it turns out that it isn't important, proving that and discounting it puts added weight onto fishing and climate change. Therefore, it's really important if people are going to take us seriously that we do have um, harder evidence to understand. I don't want to say I'm trying not to say lobby, but we need evidence to give to policymakers to show them where they need to make a change and what to do. Yeah, and it's it's obviously really hard to do that. I imagine it kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. So when you, at first, you try and tip out all the pieces, you know, that there's a huge, great big mess, you don't even know where to start. And then sometimes the easiest thing that you can do is separate the pieces out into, you know, like little corner pieces or bits of the side or bits of the middle. And then it makes it easier to put the whole picture together. Um, and that's sort of how I imagine that. And then, like you said, you can help policymakers to make the most targeted decision. Um, 
And we'll talk a little bit later on about kind of, you know, how you're doing that and and what you're beginning to find out. Um, But first of all, I kind of wanted to ask about penguins, because this is something that I don't get the opportunity to ask many people about. Um, And so why I've got you, I'm going to ask you about penguins in Antarctica. Um, And the easiest place to start is by asking, what makes a penguin a penguin? Well, they're birds. A lot of people forget that. So uh, their brains and a lot of their hardwiring and their anatomy is avian. And obviously it's been modified. They've adapted it very well. Um, But they're fundamentally birds. And if you see them um, forming a raft in the water, they're flocking like a murmuration of starlings. Um, So the birds with feathers, their feathers are some of the more adapted or differentiated um, in the avian world. Um, What makes a penguin a penguin is cold tolerance and also quite a lot of starvation tolerance. So um, even those that you find in South Africa, the Galapagos, they're they're living in colder water next to colder currents that are quite rich. So they're very good at tolerating the cold both through fat and through adaptation in their feathers and their feathers are just beautiful um, adaptations. Um, they have like a down jacket so they have a layer of outer feathers that are very um, that are very waterproof and within that on the same individual feather but like a separate shaft they got this fluffy downy bit um, that is like a down jacket so unlike a lot of birds. Um, Starvation tolerance, I mean, they're, they're bigger and longer-lived than most birds. Seabirds in general are uh, longer-lived. And uh, they need that for their their kind of niche in Antarctica means that um, they, they're separated from their food source. And actually, one of them needs to stay with an egg or a chick for quite a long time particularly too extreme that's the emperor penguins when the males are incubating over winter for two to three months well they're they're independent for two to three months um while while the female is feeding up so that that's extreme starvation tolerance um and then i mean the thing everyone knows about them is that they can't fly uh but they do have a form of flying underwater so they've lost flight um, but gained the ability to be incredible divers. Uh, so flying would be useful to get to where they want food, but by sacrificing that ability and being a bit slower and possibly a bit less efficient by commuting in the water, by swimming, um, they've gained the ability to go really deep and exploit food that would be out of reach to a flying seabird. I mean, even at its best, uh, uh, albatrosses trying to dive go down to 15 metres uh, at their best. Um, things like fulmars can go quite a bit, uh, sorry, gannets can go a lot deeper. Um, but ultimately, they're deep water specialists. I think that's so awesome because I think we've got a bit of a misconception of penguins in that they're quite cute and really adorable and you know they've got these kind of really funny personalities a little bit like puffins um but they're actually incredibly hardy birds that survive in this sort of quite harsh environment and 
I imagine it's kind of like with seals, when you see seals on land, they're really ungraceful and struggling to move around and quite cute. And then as soon as you see one underneath the water, it's completely, completely in its element. And something that blew my mind about penguins when I first started doing zoology was just how many species there actually are. So can you talk a little bit about some of the species that we might find in Antarctica? I know you talked about the emperor penguin. Yeah. So, I mean, this is in flux a bit because uh, genetics is changing this quite a bit. So some of the species that we thought were separate species are not. Um, genetically, they're, they're the same, but they look slightly different across their range. So uh, macaronis and royal penguins that are still classed as separate species are almost certainly one species. So there's something like 19 species. Um, 18 officially recognized right now probably once you've split some and grouped others there uh, there's about 19 um and they're fairly diverse um it's certainly in the habitats they're in but but like i say constrained by cold water currents and um yeah and where and what they forage on what we see now is uh um, so emperor penguins close to the mainland they actually never touch land they're on sea ice when they're breeding or they're at sea um, uh, king penguins are their kind of sister species uh, and they're they're differentiated by they look very similar they're a big penguin and the king is the sub-antarctic specialist and the emperor is the antarctic specialist then as you get into the smaller penguins, the pygocelids, there's gentoos, chinstraps, adelies. That's probably, the adelie is probably the kind of type specimen in people's imagination. Uh, so that's a small black and white penguin. Um, one of the most ice tolerant. So it's one of the first to turn up uh, in spring. Um, and all of those are, they're, they're really focused on krill and some small fish. Uh, so ev almost everything in Antarctica is reliant on krill to some degree. So this small shrimp-like crustacean uh, is found under the sea ice and in summer it is released as the sea ice melts and then everything comes and eats it. Um, so those are the pygocelids. So uh, of those... The chinstraps and adelies are are the more uh, specialist to Antarctica, so those are currently doing pretty poorly. And gentoos are more generalist, and they're also found more in the subantarctic, and they're doing pretty well. Um, and and there are differences within Antarctica. So in East Antarctica, adelies are doing well, where there's still quite a lot of ice. On the peninsula, they're doing pretty badly, uh, where there's less ice and all of the other stresses we've named um, then as you come out into the sub-antarctic so still in the southern ocean but away from the mainland you get uh, more of the kings macaroni penguins um, uh, rock hoppers royals and um, snares and things like that over in the australian new zealand sector so yeah there's probably about Within what you would call Antarctica, there's probably seven species. There has been a lot more species. There's at least 60 species of extinct... Uh, sorry, there have been a total of about 60 species um, 
so at least 40 are extinct uh, and going back you know some of them looked a bit less like penguins but they the the antarctic peninsula for example used to be a lot more diverse uh, so there was possibly three times the number of species of penguin that there are now from films and things you, you've got a particular idea in your head of what a penguin looks like but then there's actually so many different types it's amazing um and you also just earlier on you described penguins as indicators uh, can you explain what you mean by that yeah well there's a there's a biological idea that things and and actually a very practical idea of what responds to the environment um in a way that it's useful to understand the health of the environment and also that you can measure it so penguins are pretty good indicators because they're easy to count they're relatively robust so they're easy to study and traditionally people even try to get diet out of penguins um and uh so yeah they're They've been easy to study and they're everywhere. So that's why they got called an indicator species. Um, I think that's true. But the flip side is people used to say things like Antarctic shags were poor indicators because they were really easy to disturb. So that, to me, actually makes them a very good indicator species. If they're easily disturbed, that's what you want to measure. The problem is measuring it. So we've really focused on non-invasive, passive techniques. I mean, the whole point of what I do is we are worried that science and national programs is actually one of the threats to the environment to some degree. So we can't then scale up what we're doing and become part of the problem. So things like time-lapse cameras, drones, all these non-invasive ways of monitoring them means that uh, we can do a lot more we can compare visited with unvisited areas and of course we can finally keep an eye on shags because we don't need to go anywhere near them particularly at a time of year when they're sensitive so so yes that's what an indicator means it's um they're good at sampling the environment and they're measurable and tech makes a lot more things measurable so we probably won't focus so much on individual indicator species and we'll probably get closer to understanding the ecosystem as a whole. I wanted to come back to talk about your project and sort of, of, of what you're doing. We were already just talking about it there. You're looking at population change over time so how is it that you're able to do that? Uh, going back through historic records, and this is really with, I've got a name check, a collaborator, Heather Lynch at this point, and also Ron Naveen over in the States. So they've been doing this for a lot longer than I have. Um, what we're starting to do with the drones is take historic counts of colonies and make them more regular and more sensitive. So um, you fly a drone over a colony, and by the way, they really don't notice it. I mean, it's hard to get them to look up. Uh, the, um, we then stitch all those together and they're geo-referenced. So by the time we've counted every nest, we can look at exactly where each nest was year on year. So not only can we count them, but we can look at the population structure and, and change. Sorry, the, the colony structure and change. Um, 
For a lot of colonies, we leave time-lapse cameras. So those take a photo roughly every hour, and they record key things like when they're turning up, um, when they first breed or lay eggs, um, when those eggs hatch, and how many chicks go to success, which means the point at which we lose track of them. Um, so we can get an idea of, of colony success year on year. And because we monitor so many, that means we can start to disentangle. We can say, where has the fishery been? How has that impacted on colony success versus areas where they haven't been experiencing fishing? And actually, the final thing we do is increasingly we go around and pick up poo. So we go around the edge of the colony and it's amazing how much you get from poo. So we look at diet and disease and stress indicators from those. Yeah, poo has so much information inside of it. It's amazing. Um, but we'll talk about these kind of threats that you're trying to disentangle. So we already kind of talked about, you know, tourism and potentially, you know, even the impact of people who are going to research Antarctica. Um, so how can tourism affect penguins? I know you, you discussed it might have positive impacts, but, you know, also might have you know, potentially neutral or quite negative impacts as well. Um, and, you know, do you think this is becoming a greater threat as potentially more people are, or having a greater impact as more people are potentially able to go to Antarctica? Yeah, I, I don't know. There are definitely pros and cons. So in the past, before, before there was regulation that came in in the 90s, I think, um, it was pretty unregulated. So I'm sure that tourism by which i include actually scientists you know off duty um i mean there's a negative way that one person can make a difference and that's um yeah you can make a difference quite badly and quite suddenly if you don't pay attention near nests and you cause um an abandonment or something like that and then that's a that's two birds that have lost their reproductive success for that year if a skewer nicks an egg or something like that so tourism has a potential to make a negative difference, um, but that's not what we're seeing. We're actually seeing very little difference by their um, by their presence when since they've been well managed. Um, it is growing, and so that is something to keep a real eye on. Um, I mean, it, it needs to be very very controlled. And I'm probably slightly worried about more ship traffic, just by more vessels. So I'd be more worried about what is unknown at the moment through an impact on whales and seals. But the positives are that people shine a light on what's going on. And there's no doubt that since tourism came to Antarctica, um, that actually a lot of the national programs have had to clean up their act. Uh, there's still a lot to do in some cases, but but I see that as a positive. People posting, we need people to post pictures though that aren't just of the the beautiful blue and white background. We actually need them to post bad things as well to shine a light on it. Yeah, absolutely, and I definitely think that you know, given that penguins have such a you know, people adore them worldwide. You know that potentially seeing penguins in trouble that could garner quite a lot of support 
and yeah that's really interesting that it, it has kind of both positives and negatives um, but two other main threats that you talked about were climate change and fishing. Um, and so I wondered if you could maybe talk about fisheries uh, or fishing and how that might affect penguin populations. Yeah, um, well, I'm far more, this is what I'm far more worried about. I think um, irrespective, it comes down to krill and, and food, whether whether it's climate change or uh, or fishing that's actually driving a lot of the change we see the vast majority of change is due to one of those and um, and yeah there's an increasing amount of fishing around the Antarctic Peninsula and the South Orkney Islands um, it basically it peaked uh, in the last couple of years of the Soviet Union then with the collapse of that, um, it declined for a lot, and it's pretty much back up at where it, it was then. Um, it's got really industrialised. This is all legal, by the way. It's just not managed uh, effectively, in my opinion. Um, what needs to change with the fishing debate is it's not how much they take, it's where and when they take it. Um, you really do see them clustered around hotspots where um, w there are also hotspots for whales and penguins and flying seabirds and seals. So um, it's heavily industrialised. It's very good at um, finding and exploiting patches of krill, which therefore may make quite a big difference to to those populations. So gaining evidence of of how much of the changes we see is due to climate change versus um versus fishing and krill fishery uh, the krill fishery specific that's the hard bit so if you like we've got some pretty good circumstantial evidence but that's not that's not causal yet and pinning that down is hard but my gut feeling is that um, we really need to distribute the krill fishery to manage it. Um, they shouldn't have free reign on where they go uh, because it's concentration that is likely to have an impact if it is having an impact rather than the amount. Yeah, it, it's, it's, I mean, interesting is probably not the, the right word from a scientific perspective. It's interesting, but, you know, from... A conservation perspective it's really worrying um, and we've talked about this about sharks on the podcast as well is that these threats aren't independent of each other you know they, they do overlap in certain places and that's what makes it so hard to untangle all of that but that that's exactly what you're trying to do one question that i that i had is you know do we know how much trouble penguins are, are in? Do we know how, how much their populations have declined? Yes. Um, yes, there's a... I mean, we've we've been doing some kind of synoptic... And again, this is really driven by Heather Lynch over in Stony Brook. Um, yes, we know that, that chinstrap penguins have declined quite a lot. Um, I actually can't remember the figure. I think it's roughly 30% uh, where we've monitored them overall. But again, I need to caution that that you can look at some you can look at individual colonies and 
there's a few that are doing very well that are increasing but the overall there's a lot that are declining and the worry is that um the biggest ones are declining so so yeah chin straps are doing badly um a dailies it depends where you look uh, they're doing badly on the antarctic peninsula they're doing very well in east antarctica uh, gen 2s are doing pretty well overall so there's clearly winners and losers um and uh, my guess is that will continue because there's nothing obvious that's reversing um the the ones that are doing badly are likely hammered by both climate change and fishing so um so yeah i i i don't know how bad it's going to get though yeah but but at the moment it's it's not looking great um i think it's fair to say it's worrying yeah yeah it's worrying that's the and that's the problem i need to be scientific and i need to separate cause and effect uh, causal relationships versus just associations but either way however you look at it it's pretty worrying mm-hmm. and and i mean the work that you're doing um you know with your team and with other colleagues and in and, and different institutions that will help people to or decision makers to hopefully put measures in place that are that are targeted and that are going to help penguins um, and i mean i'm talking at the high higher level there but for someone sitting at home who's feeling very far away from Antarctica, are there things that they can do to contribute to penguin conservation? Absolutely, yes. Um, I think one of the biggest things is um, it's hard to be an ethical consumer, but look at where your food comes from, or you know, your look at where the th- the stuff you're consuming comes from, and and manage it. Um, so stuff that comes from Antarctica is krill products, which can be found in um, pet food. Um, in they're used as both a food and a colour additive for a lot of salmon's, um, and uh, krill oil as well. So one of the omega threes is from krill. Um, so you can make decisions based on that. Um, there's a general question about. Um, just about our our footprint on the globe i mean um yeah uh flying consumption um um how many kids we have um is an unpopular one but that's what we need ultimately we need to live at a pop with a population that is not growing certainly so um that sums up to consider your impact on the world and how you can make it manageable I think yeah definitely I think it and I think it's so fascinating that I mean as a scientist myself I've increasingly thought about the impact of my field work and I think what you've shown with the use of kind of remote technologies that you that you can study these populations and 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 gather data you know without having to go and, and be in that place all the time and um, I think that's one of the things that's that's so fascinating about your project. But talking about people who are at home, um, one of the things, one of the last things I want to ask you about is actually Penguin Watch, which is, that's also something that people can do. So that's a citizen science scheme. It's had, uh, on your website, it says it's had an incredible 50,000 volunteers to date, which is phenomenal. Oh, overall, it's well over. It's well over that. Those are the registered volunteers. So we we don't keep track of people. Um, 
but the people who register, they can keep track of how much they've done. Uh, so it's only the registered volunteers, and it's it's way over a million. I believe it's about two million people that have taken part. Um, it pretty much doubled in 2020. Uh, we were pretty popular before lockdown, and then there were a lot of teachers that needed online content. So um, we were in a lot of classrooms. Yeah, there was a huge spike in April, May 2020 that dwarfed any other spike we'd had in the past. So so what Penguin Watch is, is we put all of the time-lapse images online and occasionally we put some of the drone footage up as well. And um, they go on that and they click on every adult chick and egg and that um, that collects data for us. It also trains AI how to do it. So we've got quite a lot of good AI working now. So the ones we put up on Penguin Watch are either a new scenario that the AI doesn't work for or just to validate something we're not sure of to keep it accurate. So it's very much us asking for help. That changed in 2020. And that was, uh, <laughs> it was a rush to keep up, um, but it was nice to be able to give, to feel we were giving something back. Um, so yeah, a lot, um, yeah, 2020 was particularly crazy for trying to um, keep these teachers and school kids up to date with with um, with penguins. That's really cool. Um, and yeah, I think citizen science definitely picked up a lot during the pandemic because people were looking for things to do. They were looking for ways that they can help. But, you know, for people at home listening, there's you know, citizen science is, is so important to conservation because you can be you can be the extra pair of hands that a lot of scientists need basically um so we'll put a link to penguin watch if anyone wants to have a go i would definitely recommend it really fun um and so i'm very very conscious of your time tom so i'm just going to bring us round to a close but it has been absolutely fascinating talking to you and learning all about Antarctica and all about penguins. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and so if our listeners want to find out more about you or more about your work, where can they head? I think it's all on Penguin Watch. So yeah, if you go to the about section of Penguin Watch, we also have downloads in terms of uh, images, uh, videos, um, and info sheets there. Um, or actually, the Save Our Seas Foundation site had a lot, a lot of infographics that uh, they helped us with to explain the project. So I think, um, yeah, both of those are good places to go. Yeah, great. All right. So I have one final question for you, and this again is one that we ask every single one of our guests, and it's a bit of a silly one, but it's our favourite. Um, I mean, usually we ask if you could be any species of shark or ray in the world, what would you be and why? But because we have a you on, I am interested to know if you could be any Antarctic species, what would you be and why? Uh, well, okay. So firstly, the shark one would be a manta shark, an extinct, really bonkers thing, uh, with long wings or rays rather, and that is because it's kind of like the albatross, the extinct albatross of the sea. Oh, nice. So I love that oh, idea. That's a really good answer, yeah. Um, 
because that I would probably be an albatross in the Southern Ocean. I think uh, one of the giant albatrosses would be amazing. Yeah, albatross is a great one. Um, sorry, I kind of threw you a curveball there after asking you what species of shark or ray you would be, but I thought I'd just uh, just just ask you just because I have you what species you'd be in Antarctica. But yeah, both brilliant answers. Um, but I'm going to let you go. But thank you so much for coming on our podcast, Tom. It's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. And we'll put links to all of your work in the show notes so that people can can find you um, and find out more about what it is that you do. But yeah, thank you so much for taking time out to come on the whole two. Cool. Thank you, Isla. And thank you so much to the Save Our Seas Foundation. This podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was hosted and edited by me, Isla Hodgson. Our beautiful artwork is by Nicola Poulos and the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. A huge, huge, huge thank you to Tom for taking the time to chat to us. If you want to find out more about him, the project, and how to get involved in Penguin Watch, you can find all the links in the write-up of this episode. And thank you at home for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, pitch a question, suggest a podcast topic, or just say hi, we'd love to hear from you. Just drop an email to isla at saveourseas.com. And if you like this episode, please be sure to rate, review and subscribe. It means a lot to us and it helps more people to find this podcast and find out about how awesome our oceans really are, which I think you'll agree is really, really important. Alrighty, have a awesome week and we will see you next time.